it was the first time that I'd been embedded in a war zone and sort of the first time that I'd seen it up close. And it completely changed the way that I go about covering the Pentagon, sort of the safety of the halls here back in in D.C., covering the medevac mission and the work that corpsmen and medical officers undergo is a really sort of ugly view of the war. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital news and the people who produce it. In studio today with me is Paul Shinkman, national security reporter for U.S. News and World Report. Thanks for coming in. Of course, Mike. Good to see you. Good to see you. So the last time I saw you, we were both on an Osprey flying into National Harbor. That's right. Yeah. Getting the grand the grand entrance into the... Uh, uh, the, the, the great convention that is uh, uh, sorry, let's, it's the air let's, sea let's and space. Yeah, the air air sea space convention. It's one of these great physical demonstrations of the uh, military industrial complex when contractors and members of the military uh, all come together. In this case, it was at the Gaylord Convention Center yeah. in National Harbor. And uh, they had a few of us come down to Quantico, right? To right. Go was, get we had like five in the morning, go out to Quantico, we're out on the tarmac. Yeah. They, had, they had two Ospreys, you know gassed up we we only ended up taking one but flew up the uh, Potomac River uh, and went to National Harbor. That's right. It was a yeah, pretty was cool neat. experience. It was. Yeah, we were flying with a couple one stars, right? Wasn't there or or no, I guess that that general met us when we arrived right. and kind of talked a, a bit about it. Yeah, it's funny with the Osprey, that's sort of the the Marine Corps baby that they're so desperate to prove is not a flying death trap. Um, <laughs> oh, something they did not tell us. I that, guess I should have done my homework. Before oh yeah, that. no, it's it's interesting. You know, they so the Osprey had a, a very very troubled history during its development and some very high profile crashes, but it served incredibly in Afghanistan, particularly with the Marines' efforts. So I think they're eager for opportunities like that one to sort of show the general public that this is something that is well the general public or the press the people right. who are who are covering there are always opportunities when they can show their toys they like showing their toys well i thought that was an interesting demonstration and we can get into more of this later but of just the incredible powerhouse that is military public affairs right i mean they yeah. were doing that because it was cool and i think they wanted to inform us about you know, how these things operate. But it was also so that when we write about the Osprey in the future, you know, the next time that we see of some major crash or something, then we have personal experience. It's like, oh, well, hang on. That thing actually would seem pretty safe when I was on it and the crew was really nice and, you know, all of the rest of it. Well, and, and we were in it, and but it was also for the people who were at National Harbor that, you know, as it's coming over the, the water sure, and, and, yeah. and landing and, and makes this sort of grand entrance. And it's very dramatic. If your listeners don't know, this is the thing where it's sort of half helicopter, half airplane, where there, there are these massive cells next to uh, this aircraft. That's the body of which is about the same size as a Blackhawk, I guess. Yeah. And then they have these two rotors that turn upward so you can hover and then turn forward once you're in the air so you can actually fly quite quickly. And it makes a hell of a lot of noise. It does. Well, I remember it was it was raining that day yeah. and the tarmac below the helicopter was bone dry because – do you remember that? Because yeah. the, uh, the the rotors were turning so fast that it just dried. And, it and we had to have uh, head, headsets on. It was really really so, loud. Yeah, yeah, it was it was an interesting experience. It I, was one of my one of my uh, more fun experiences. And 
uh, having to do with this job. I don't I don't actually get out a whole lot anymore, but that was I think it was one of the last times I went out to to do something fun. So yeah, let's get back to national security. It's yeah. kind of a a big umbrella. What does that What does that mean for you as a beat? It is well. I mean, in truth, it it sort of means one thing until it, it gets expanded into something else. You know, I mean, I think the, one of the most interesting cases recently was the San Bernardino shootings. When that news first broke, it got assigned to our sort of civil justice criminal investigations reporter. And then as soon as there was any inkling that these people perhaps might have some sort of sympathy, at least toward the Islamic State group, then it got kicked to me. So, you know, what was once a beat that was reserved for declared war overseas is now increasingly creeping into all aspects of our society. As soon as there's something that threatens the security of any community in the world. That's something that conceivably my beat could include. Are you working on the Brussels story? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's something that that really sort of dominated my life for this past week. It's so tricky with these kinds of things because, you know, our job, right, is to explain things that are too complicated and seem foreign, right? Either sort of physically because it's in a foreign land or in terms of the way that you understand the motivations of these people. And this case is particularly important because you have these people who are Belgian citizens and they attack a point in their own country. And we need to figure out why that is, not only to to make sense of this one incident, but then what that could mean here, right? Does that mean that we need to now be afraid of Muslim communities in the U.S.? Well, no, because here are the circumstances surrounding that attack and where those people came from and who they worked with and that kind of thing. Those are the questions that I think are so important to answer especially at a time when you have a political atmosphere that seems ripe for assigning blame to large swaths of our population. Now more than ever, it's particularly important to identify what the threat actually is. Okay. Yeah, certainly. I was going to mention the the, the political, political aspect of it, that that's a story that can feed a lot of uh, the discussion that's going on. And if people don't sort of understand, you know, the story behind what those people, what their motivations were and, you know, how that, how that it relates to America and our concerns, uh, both politically and, and from a security aspect, you know, it, it's easy to get, to be fearful and to jump to conclusions. Well, Belgium is a particularly interesting case because it's kind of a concentrated example of many of the problems that we have in these circumstances now. So it's got this fractured police force, this fractured political system, just by virtue of its demographic breakup from before a lot of different groups began to immigrate to Belgium. Add to that these communities now that are fairly isolated um, Muslim communities. One of the points that I've been hearing a lot this week is how few of uh, religious leaders in these Muslim communities in neighborhoods like Amolenbeek, which is where one of the attackers was from, how few of the religious leaders speak in the local language. They mostly speak from the language of their home country or the country from which they had come. So it creates this environment where as soon as people then become scared and are looking for answers, it becomes very easy to say, well, those people that you don't see day to day that live in that community over there, they're the ones who are responsible. We should be afraid of them. And that's just, you know, completely the wrong answer. But that's but that's an easy one to kind of jump to when you're looking at these very complicated situations that make people so afraid. Yeah, and we were talking before we uh, turned on the mics that uh, you have been covering ISIS. How long have you been working on that story? Yeah, so I mean, it's been something that's kind of coming and gone for a long time now. It began with covering Al-Qaeda 
in Iraq, which is ISIS precursor group. And then looking at sort of its beginnings of when it established its uh, symbolic hub in Raqqa and Syria. And then, of course, in the summer of 2014, when it actually began to expand militarily into Syria and then across the border into Iraq. It's been something that's kind of been on the back burner for as long as I've been covering this beat now. It's going on four years. But for the last two years, really kind of been the central focus of my of my work. So how do you cover something like that? It's really tricky. It's really, really tricky, particularly so. for an organization like this that sort of has so many different kinds of, of a manifestations. I mean, on, on the one side, you have this sort of traditional military enemy, and then you have a traditional Western military response, right? This war zone in Iraq and Syria, which again, is kind of bifurcated by the fact that we have sort of a declared military presence in Iraq, which is a country that we're technically allied with. And then you have this just kind of cauldron of disaster next door in Syria where we don't formally have conventional U.S. forces. We do not have conventional U.S. forces, and we have this very sort of shady special operations force. So there's that side of it. But then you have this kind of worldwide phenomenon where they've branded themselves brilliantly as the sort of hottest insurgent game in town. So when you have somebody like the San Bernardino shooters who may have had no contact ever with anybody who's actually been to Iraq or Syria. But as soon as they say, I believe in ISIS and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, all of a sudden you have this kind of tentacle expansion of that war in the Middle East to being an ideological conflict that now sort of spans spans the globe. So it's a lot of trying to figure out, this is a very long-winded answer to your question, but it's a lot of trying to kind of in my mind, I think, sort of make those divisions, you know, what actually is the component that we're looking at, and then looking at the motivations of of the actors. So how do you, I think I'm going to ask the same question again, um, you know, how do you keep track of the story? It's so, so huge. Is it just, you know, it, it, it's something that you, you've accumulated expertise and sources and, you know, ideas about, and then as some new thing emerges like like this um, uh, bombing in in, uh, in Belgium then is it like you 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 sort of dive back into that that wealth of uh, information that you have and, and try to make sense of it so the way that I usually start is is trying as hard as I can to understand the perspectives of the people involved so you look at somebody like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi right this guy who's the symbolic leader and actual leader of Isis in Iraq he had previously worked with the leaders of al-Qaeda in that part of the world, spent a long time in a U.S. prison with disputable conditions, and now he's leading this insurgent campaign in that part of the world. You know, you, you look at the attackers in Europe and a, a, any of the attacks, including the ones in Paris, the ones in Charlie Hebdo, try to get a perspective on where they came from before and what might have motivated them to act the way that they did. That's usually the way that I start and then in keeping with the Western response as well, I, I try to spend a lot of time reading, you know, news reports and tweets and Facebook posts from the different parts of the world where I'm covering, talk to experts who might be able to see the reactions from those countries with a bit more context that can kind of fuel why it is that people are doing the way the things that they are. Because it's too easy to just sort of disregard this as one unified insurgent campaign that's spreading across the world. It's actually many different sort of fractured kinds of campaigns that are going on here and getting that that sort of 
cultural perspective, I think, is the easiest way to start. Yeah, I think from probably a reader's perspective, you know, it's it's all the same thing. They see it, oh, this is ISIS. This is just it's something very organized. It's, it's some sort of, you know, trying to think of it like a government that, that has a particular uh, objective and, and resources available to do it. But I guess from what you're saying is it's not so much that. It's it's an ideology and there are lots of people who are acting maybe on their own or acting with some degree of support. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is actually the story that I'm working on right now is the extent to which the attacks in Paris and Brussels are directly connected to the Islamic State group's purposeful strategy based out of its headquarters in Raqqa, or whether it's conducting a war in the Middle East and just inspiring people who were angry and capable before they decided that ISIS was going to be their motivation and channeling them to commit these kinds of attacks worldwide. You know, ISIS has, has been very shrewd at tapping into existing networks to carry out what it believes is its sort of vision of the world. There's increasing connection between existing mafia and other organized crime in Europe, for example. And that's sort of a smart move by any transnational organization to just make their lives easier, right? By instead of having to create your own networks, you just tap into ones Employed that exist already. Help. Yeah, exactly right. But it also makes, it could also make ISIS seem bigger than it already is. I mean, I spoke to an expert this week who had a great line about how if you are in organized crime in Europe and you are not your, you know, your grandfather is not from the neighborhood where you lived, you had moved there from a, from a foreign country, perhaps a former French or Belgian colony. You already were involved with organized crime. If you're then presented with this organization that says, I, you know, we appreciate your work. You're a good person. You will be absolved of your crimes if you believe in our system of belief. And not only do you have a shot at redemption, and not only are we not going to ask you to change your life, but we're going to ask you to use all the skills that you've embraced in your upbringing, but do it for us. And you will be rewarded gloriously in heaven. It isn't that simple, but that's kind of a a stark example of the way that ISIS has become so attractive to these networks. So is, is it any, from the other perspective, from the, uh, you know, the U.S. government and other government security response to this, is, it, is that any easier to cover or, you know, are they more guarded with what they want to tell you? It's a particularly tricky setup. And I think this is part of the reason why fighting ISIS is so complicated is because, you know, looking at the Brussels attack that's as much an FBI working with local law enforcement in Belgium as it is the military campaign headquartered in Baghdad deploying forces across the border into Syria and what kinds of intelligence they're seeing of fighters moving in and out of Syria and into Europe. So if you thought that our government was stovepiped before... Wait until you see the way that it is now. Now, granted, the U.S. has gotten much better at sharing intelligence, right? And this is something that's come up a lot this week because that's the central criticism at the Belgian government is that they weren't sharing information across their own government and certainly not with foreign intelligence services. And that's what created these cracks into which these attackers carried out their strikes. Uh, 
So it is a very, very complicated mess to try to, to tap into. And you, in, in some ways, you have to look at it just in sort of separate pieces. You have to go to the FBI and treat that separately than going to the military for information. I would imagine that, um, you know, if something happens, it, 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 puts the, it puts the American government and the American military and, and law enforcement in, in a sort of odd position because, you know, they're doing what they're doing. And a lot of it is probably not out there in the open and for people to see. Mm-hmm. And there's probably a degree of frustration from the American public and like, well, why aren't you sending in troops? Why aren't you arresting people? Why aren't you, you know, doing this, that and the other thing when in actuality they're probably doing quite a lot, but not uh, visibly. It's tough because you're absolutely correct. And and that's the war that's going on here is kind of two-faced. There is the actual conflict that is taking place either in sort of traditional warfare in the Middle East or through these attacks in places like Paris and Brussels. But there's also sort of a war of minds going on here where, just as you say, the U.S. would usually, for example, usually want to carry out all of these operations in secret, whether it's CIA missions or commando missions into Syria, but they have to come back and and give something to the public, right? Say, this is what we're doing to show that this group is not 10 feet tall, as they so often like to say, but they are capable of being defeated. Whereas ISIS wants to be able to say, for example, we can deploy our fighters from Raqqa to Brussels whenever we want to. And here's an example of how we're doing that. So it's as much a propaganda war. It's as much a war over the sort of the mind and spirit of the kinds of people who could be convinced to join ISIS as it is an actual tangible kinetic war of drone strikes. And- so how do you prevent yourself then from becoming a mouthpiece for either side? It's really, really difficult. You know, this is sort of the conflict that I'm working on right now is is it's been interesting looking at the different metrics the Pentagon has put forward for success, right? <laughs> and it's particularly interesting being in the press briefing room with people who covered like the end of the war in Vietnam and hearing some of the similarities like, hey, we carried out, you know, 11,000 drone strikes or uh, airstrikes since the beginning of the air campaign against ISIS. And we've killed, you know, 30 foreign fighters at this one strike yesterday. Isn't that great? It sounds like the math they used in Vietnam. Right. Yeah. The the Friday Night Follies or whatever it's called. You know, here is a tangible demonstration of our success. Well, that's wonderful. How has that actually advanced any of our end goals in this campaign? So that's that was what the military used to use. Now they've been focusing much more on money. A lot of the metrics that they've been using are here are the number of places where we've blown up warehouses full of cash. Here are the number of oil tankers that we've blown up. Here are the number of um, oil, oil or refineries that we've dismantled, all chipping away at, at ISIS money. And that's something that I'm working on now is the extent to which ISIS is actually losing money or whether they're just using different forms of income. Well, let's sort of transition away from this and talk about some of the other stories that you, you've worked on. Um, you were in Afghanistan mm-hmm. uh, embedded with, uh, I think, Army Marine, Air Force? Is Air Force and Army units. Yeah, I'd gone there. The, the goal of my uh, sort of the main story that I was going in, in there to cover was our ability to medevac people who were wounded on the battlefield, not in the least because it's interesting, but because that's probably, that is what I I had heard from every single combat commander who'd come back from Afghanistan is one of the single most important things that we must be able to give to the Afghans if they're going to have any hope of succeeding after we withdraw from being the primary fighting force there. Because 
no soldier for any government is going to leave the safety of a base to go fight if they don't think that somebody can come and get them and bring them home. So when did you do that? This story? was summer of 13. So it was the end of our, it was sort of the last fighting season where we had kind of the principal role of fighting the insurgency there and we're trying to turn it over to the Taliban. So it was an interesting time to be there. And I'm actually planning to go back this summer to kind of see how it's, how it's changed because a lot has changed during that time. So what was your experience there? What, what were kind of some of the things that you took away from, you know, being in Afghanistan, uh, being embedded? It was absolutely fascinating. It's, it's, it was the first time that I'd been embedded in a war zone and sort of the first time that I'd seen it up close. And it completely changed the way that I go about covering the Pentagon, sort of the safety of the halls here back in in D.C., covering the medevac mission and the work that corpsmen and medical officers undergo is a really sort of ugly view of the war. You see a lot of really nasty things up close. And these wars have been defined by improvised explosive devices that are designed not even necessarily to kill, but to really maim people. And that's a very unpleasant thing to see up close. I had a particularly interesting lens into the conflict. The C-17 that brought me into Bagram, I was talking with the, the crew chief about sort of what was going on and what his missions were that day. And the plane that brought us in, as soon as it offloaded me and the other troops that were flying in in the cargo, was going to pick up the first people wounded in this attack in Wardok province outside of Kabul, where uh, an insurgent posing as a shepherd had packed a bunch of explosives into a donkey, wow. sewed it up again, and moved it into the middle of this U.S. patrol and blew it up. And the first casualties from that attack were being loaded onto the C-17 that I was getting off of. So I spent some time talking to some of the medical officers and the medical chiefs about what they saw. And everyone was particularly shaken up, more so as as I understood at the time than they usually were, because there had been a policy from the Pentagon that had just come down weeks prior to local patrols to not interfere with the work of shepherds, particularly, because it was interfering with the Afghan government or uh, uh, the Afghan um, commerce economy moving animals around is such an important part of that of that work that that there was this sort of mandate from on high you need to stop interfering with the movements of shepherds and livestock and that kind of thing and the Taliban figured that out very very quickly that that was this new kind of chink in the armor of US forces and immediately figured out a, a way to kill Americans based off this policy. And throughout my entire time that I was there, I, I kept sort of bumping into people who were somehow in, involved in this operation, whether it was the helicopter crew that had actually first responded. I talked to a corpsman who'd actually been one of the first people on the scene to patch up these guys. And then on my flight home, the uh, the last casualty from that attack had finally been stabilized enough. This was two weeks later, had finally been stabilized enough to be moved out of Afghanistan and to um, Ramstein Air Force Base to Landstuhl, where they could try to stabilize him ultimately to send him home. And that flight, they uh, flew his folks from Oregon to Landstuhl to go see him, to be on the flight that brought him home. It was their second time being on an, an airplane. Their first was flying to Kentucky to see him graduate from basic training. He was this young man, Nicholas Welch, 
who uh, joined the army for all the usual reasons. He had some student debt from community college and figured this would be an opportunity. There are no job prospects in his small town in Oregon. So we thought, I'm going to join the military and pay off this debt and get future all the things that the ads tell you are going are going to happen. So at this point now, I'm on a C-17 flying from Ramstein back home. And there's this young man. You can see visible shrapnel wounds all over his face. He's in a medically induced coma. He's no idea what's going on going on around him and they're flying him back home. His folks are on this plane. I get up and go over to the jump seats where they're sitting right before we're about to take off and say, I introduce myself and tell them, you know, who I am and what I'm there to do. And that I'm specifically sort of covering this side of the mission. Do they mind if I sit and chat with them? And And I ended up talking to them for about six hours on this flight back home to the States, back to, back to Andrews all about their lives back home and what they thought of the army and how proud they were of their son who was sitting, you know, mere feet in front of us on this stretcher. When we got to altitude, his eyes began to bleed, which is a common thing that happens when you have internal injuries. But that was an interesting thing to be sort of there with them as they were experiencing this. I ended up finding, so he he ended up dying about 36 hours after they landed back in the States. And I, I learned later, following up with the officials who were sort of governing his transfer, that the military knew he wasn't going to make it. And that's why they flew his parents out to Germany, was they figured that that would be a chance for them to bring him home Spend some and time to be with, with him. him before he died. But they just knew because, you know, we've been doing, at the time we've been doing this for 12 years, they knew that when you have those kinds of blasts, you're not going to live. And it's just a matter of keeping you alive until your family can get to you. So this is a very long-winded way of saying that, you know, that completely changed the way that I viewed from then on hearing things like policies from the Pentagon that say the economy of Afghanistan is disrupted when our patrols interfere with shepherds. When you're sitting in the Pentagon, that that sounds right. That's That makes sense, right? We need to get these, get Afghanistan back on its feet, get them to a place where they can run their country for themselves. That's a policy that makes sense. But when you see what it's like on the other end of that spectrum, on the people who have to actually carry it out, it's an entirely different story. Yeah. Decisions decisions mean lives and, and changing the lives of a lot of people. That's right. Not, not just that they die, but their family members, or their lives are changed as well. Yeah. And that's probably, you know, the, the fact that more Americans might die is probably something that the American decision makers took into account when they made that policy. But that's sort of one of the more ugly sides of decision-making in this town. Yes, yes. You know, for, for the people who, who think about, you know, well, then obviously the thing we need to do is we need to round up all the shepherds, we need to be involved in total total war, and we need to, you know, do all this other stuff, which leads to even more death and, yeah. and mayhem um, in, in a terrible situation. I think it's, it's, it's really important, especially if you're a reporter covering these things, you can become very cynical and detached and, mm-hmm. and only see numbers. But if you, don't, if you don't recognize that every decision that comes out may have a, a real cost to it in lives and in, and in the future of many people. And it's something that's been particularly difficult, I think, for this generation of uh, service members. Probably the same was true for Vietnam, although I obviously didn't cover it that closely, but sort of what this was all for, you know, I've kept in touch with that, with that family, with Mr. and Mrs. Welch. Um, and I'd sort of drop them an email every now and then to just kind of check in to see how they're doing. And they, their hopes were high right afterward. There was a lot of, you know, well, our son died for something and Afghan is going to be 
free someday and our Nicholas contributed to that. But that's a harder thing to bite off now that we're seeing all of the gains that we made militarily in Iraq fall to the Islamic State in the last couple of years. Their expansion into Afghanistan and Afghanistan's own problems mean that victory there is probably not going to be coming any anytime soon. And it's sort of changed, you know, what is victory for us now? Right. What, you know, what does that actually look like? Yeah, yeah. And again, that's why it's important that the the role of what the journalist is there to do is mm-hmm. to tell the true story, the real yeah. story, not necessarily just disseminate, you know, oh, this is what happened at the Pentagon meeting. This is the, the administration's policy, you know, and, and not sort of examine what the, the true effect of, of these things are yeah. and the results of them. And, and many of them aren't going to be positive. They're, and what does that mean then for U.S. policy? What does that mean for U.S. politics? What does that mean for... Americans who are concerned about the future. Yeah, I think that's probably the hardest proposition that all journalists have now, especially people covering foreign affairs, is why should you care about this? There are so many reasons not to care about the civil war in a Yemen, for example. That seems like foreign foreign and far away and completely un, unrelated to anything that the average American should care about. But then particularly, you know, the war with ISIS coming out of Afghanistan, these bombing attacks in in Europe, that's that's our charge. Is why should you care about this? And it's a tough task to to complete. I think. Now you also uh, covered uh, Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, Gitmo. Uh, Gitmo. You uh, you're covering the trials of uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four alleged co-conspirators. Yeah. Uh, what was that experience like? So that's absolutely fascinating. Gitmo is the strangest place on earth, certainly that I had been to. I mean, Cuba is just this beautiful island paradise. Whenever I was looking up at like the mountains in this sort of misty, uh, warm tropical environment, the soundtrack to South Pacific kept coming into my head. <laughs> and you land so. The base at Gitmo is sort of horseshoe shaped around this bay, around Guantanamo Bay. And you land on the east side of the base and it looks like you just dropped into something out of World War II. It's all these old aircraft hangars and foamy surfs flashing up on this rocky coast. And then you take a ferry across to the, um, sorry, you land on the west side and you take a ferry across to the east side of the base. And there's more of that, but then you also see this sort of like 21st century, high speed, very much modern global war on terror facilities where we're housing some of the most dangerous, allegedly some of the most dangerous people on earth. So just that dichotomy by itself was so interesting. But yeah, as you say, there is this ongoing terrorism trials down there, which keeps sort of sputtering in terms of whether it's actually going to come to any, any sort of end. And then, of course, now with the debate over closing the facility as well, it's sort of hard to know what's going to happen next. Yeah. And and the president, you know, we're recording this. The president was just a week ago. He yep. was in Cuba. Did he visit Gitmo while he was I down there? I don't think so. No, I think he was in Havana for the entire time that he was there. Yeah. It's sort of a messy issue because the Cubans keep saying that any grounds for reestablishing our relations would involve closing Gitmo. Mm-hmm. And so... And it's worth sort of repeating, uh, your listeners have surely heard this before, but it's worth keeping in mind that there's sort of two things going on here. The U.S., so the administration wants to close the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay. That's different than closing Guantanamo Bay itself, which the military considers a strategically important base for that part of the uh It's certainly been a big pissing match for us for for at least a half century, if not longer. That's right. Um, So what are the particular challenges of covering this trial that, that sputters? 
So it's it's a fascinating business because it's it's it was sort of two pronged for me. On the one hand, it was the sort of purely judicial process of what we do with these people who are accused of truly heinous crimes. But Gitmo is also the physical embodiment of how we all felt after 9/11. We incarcerated people that perhaps didn't deserve to be incarcerated out of fear of what they were going to do. Fear and consequences. Right? And so when I was there, so they they um the way that it works is they have sort of a set number of journalists who can come down to cover these trials when they're when they're going on pre-trial hearings. It isn't yet trials. These pre-trial hearings when they're going on. They also have a lottery system for people who were directly affected by the 9/11 attacks and they can come down too. So you're in this group of journalists, but also civilians who were just there to kind of observe what's going on. And when I was there, it was particularly interesting because there were a couple uh, flight attendants, one of whom actually was supposed to be on, on one of the flights and switched with one of the women who actually did go on to one of the flights on 9-11. Um, and she was down there wearing her uniform to kind of show solidarity. They were observing the trials alongside us. There was also this young man, this special forces sergeant, and his story was particularly interesting. He was the son of of the New York firefighter, fire marshal, who was killed after in the, when the second tower came down after running up 88 fly, flights of stairs to go try to help people. His name was Buka, and he was a special forces sergeant during Vietnam, became his fire marshal. It was he who lent his name to Camp Buka in Iraq, the detention facility, at which Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and many of the people who founded ISIS were held. And a lot of people believe that that's where they sort of formulated the kind of cell and the ideology that they were going to use in this U.S. military prison, where there were some reports of abuses among the prisoners to then form ISIS in the run-up to the Iraq war. So his son went on to become a special forces sergeant in his own right. His dad was killed in 9-11. He was down there observing the trials and looking at this man who uh, supposedly plotted the attack that killed his father. So speaking to him was kind of this uh, separate sense of embodiment of all the things that have kind of happened to our country since that attack. So let's talk sort of in general about uh, being a uh, national security reporter. Mm. How do you stay on top of all of this? Uh, you know, this is a lot of information, a lot of different perspectives and, and things constantly changing. How do you, you know, how do you maintain what you're doing? I mean, I think it involves a nimbleness to be able to try to digest as much of the broad picture as you possibly can, and then getting hyper-focused on one specific aspect. Again, digesting as much information from either local reports or talking to locals or talking to people who had been there before and getting their perspective. It's the ability to understand both ends of that spectrum that I think are most important. Now, now, how did you become a reporter? How did you become a national security reporter? I noticed in your bio that you you started out. Your your was it your father or your mother who was a, a foreign service? My father, yeah, my late father was a foreign service officer. He joined in the late seventies and then retired in two thousand and two. So I spent most of my of my upbringing abroad as a dependent, and that was actually my my plan. I studied what amounted to sort of a degree in diplomacy in undergrad. I'd planned to do journalism for 10 years and then take the foreign service exam. 10 years ago is actually this year. Uh, and I just love what I do so much that I don't think I want to change right now. So it, it, what is it you like about journalism? 
I love how the access that you can get, particularly if you sort of play the game right, you can, <laughs> you, you know, you can talk to people on all aspects of the spectrum, you know, particularly people who are enemies with one another and being able to go back and forth between those two camps, if you can kind of walk that balance, I think is a perspective that nobody else can really have. You get to be the impartial sort of, uh, connection between these two opposing forces. Yeah, it, it's like when, you know, if you became a foreign service person or if you, you know, became a PR person, suddenly you're change, you're, you're, you're picking sides. That's right. Yeah. And, and then people, some people won't talk to you or, or they'll talk to you, but they'll talk to you in a different way and share a different type of information. Yeah. And, but being a journalist, you know, who can very trickily and very, you know, it, it can be a tough walk sometimes. Yeah, it is. And, and you also get to be sort of present in these incredible moments in history. I mean, I sat in the chair that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed sat in for his trials that may ultimately de determine his death. Um, I got to be in the room when the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense announces some major new policy or that we're going to war in places. I get to stand in these war zones and observe them up close. I mean, it's something that is just... It's it's sort of breathtaking at times. You step back, step back and sort of look at these things and realize what's happening around you. Yeah, the closest uh, thing I can claim to that is I actually sat in a chair that Barack Obama sat in wow. at, a, at an ice cream parlor in Alexandria. I've not done that. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh my my moment to near greatness. Uh, but, that's right. Uh, so part of our audience are are, are young journalists who mm. are just starting out their career. You know, what advice would you have for somebody who wanted to, to go down this, this track? So I, when I started in journalism, I thought the best thing to do was to learn as many different things as possible, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to learn how to write well. That's rule number one for any career that you want to have in journalism, broadcast, whatever. You must be able to write well, you know, be able to do video, photography, be able to speak intelligently on in a broadcast environment. Even if you want to be a print reporter, you're probably going to have to explain your story to a broadcast outlet at some point. So I sort of figured as as diverse as you can be, the better. And that's true. But something that I've learned also is that you, particularly when you're starting off in your career and your goal is to be the winning application in a stack of as many as a thousand that a hiring editor wants nothing more than to just weed things out and put things in the garbage can yeah. and look for reasons to not consider somebody because there's just so much to do that you have to have one thing that you really care about, one thing that you are passionate about, that you can do well better than anybody else in that pool. And it may have nothing to do with the specific job to which you're applying, but having something that makes you stand out, something that makes that hiring editor hold your application for even just 10 seconds longer than he would before he would throw it in the garbage is increasing your opportunities that much more to um, actually be brought in for an interview and then get your career started. So what what was your passion that was on your... So um, mine was always about national security. I mean, that's always been what I've, <laughs> what I've been interested in. I thought I was going to go into the military after college. That didn't work out. In school, I'd studied Islam and French studies as a minor to my political science degree. And those were always the things that I sort of carried with me. Was When I was applying for jobs, I would always say, you know, I can speak French conversationally, if ever that came up, then I would be able to sort of help you with that. I think I have a basic understanding of countries, of, of sort of the culture of countries that are predominantly Muslim. That's something that maybe I, I can sort of help with. And indeed, it, it in my first 
few years of working on the job when I was covering Capitol Hill. I remember there was one time when I when there was a, a protest among female French Africans. And I actually forget what their what their cause was now, but they were doing this protest in Rayburn. And the fact that I could speak Quebecois French instead of Parisian French made them that much more comfortable speaking to me. And I could talk to them directly and get a few extra quotes that nobody else could. And that's what really sort of made that story stand out. How'd you, how'd you learn Quebecois? Well, uh, so I was stationed to so my uh, family. My father was stationed at the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa, Canada. So we lived there for all the time that I was in high school. And Ottawa is right on the border between Ontario and Quebec. And in Quebec, the drinking age is 18 instead of 19, as it is in the rest of Canada. So I turned 18 my senior year of high school. So I had all that much more incentive to spend some time out there. So I just sort of picked it up. I'd, I'd studied French since I was um, quite young, but it was always sort of the plummy Parisian version. It was nice to be able to learn a more uh, sort of um, expressive version class. of the language. Yeah, Quebec. Uh, Qua French is is a beautiful language. I think it is so much more expressive than uh, its Parisian version. So that came in handy. Well, that's cool. Well, this is this has been a, a fun conversation going over a lot of different things that we could probably spend another couple of hours talking about ISIS and and we could and yeah. what the hell's going on with the way America is perceived and and the way we perceive the world yeah. and what's what's working, what's not working, and and we still wouldn't figure it out. No, well, <laughs> but I, it's fun I, to try. It's fun to try. That's part of what we're doing. Well, thanks a lot for coming yeah, in. Yeah, good to see you, Mike. It was good to see you. Thank you. Next time on It's All Journalism. FOIA is turning 50, and for some reason, the stars are aligned. There have been some very powerful f- stories that journalists have written using or broadcast using the Freedom of Information Act. If you look back at the Secret Service problems that we heard from Carol Lennig in the Washington Post, that used the Freedom of Information Act and her sources. The veterans and the benefits that they've been trying to get and waiting for, you know, that's a lot of FOIA-powered investigative work that's gone into that. Um, it's been a really good year for FOIA. I mean, if you look at Flint, Michigan, and the, and the water crisis there, you know, we know that EPA was dithering with the state and locals because of FOIA. So FOIA has been a really impressively you know, vital part of journalism today. Our next episode is another discussion about the Freedom of Information Act. This time around, we talk to Rick Bloom of the Sunshine and Government Initiative and Kevin Goldberg, legal counsel for the American Society of News Editors and the Association of Alternative News Media. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Google Play. This week's podcast was produced by me, Michael O'Connell, and Nicole Grisco. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.